Have you ever been guilty of overreacting? No, I didn't think so. Perhaps speaking without thinking first, or maybe tweeting without thinking first, or responding to social, other social media posts without time and reflection of whether you should respond or not. Perhaps it's shouting uh, with anger and getting angry in your car as people around you drive crazy. This is something I have actually found myself more uh, into lately. Uh, before, I've just tried to use Jedi tricks with people in the car, like, no, do not come over, or uh, my turn to go. Or, and, but now I've actually, I don't, this don't know what you say in the car, but like, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, come on in. Like, the sarcastic, like, they're, they're hearing this. Like, I find myself recently, like, overreacting to how people are driving around me. Or perhaps you are disciplining or yelling with your children for not doing their chores or talking back to you in an overreacting way. Perhaps it's taking offense to some perceived slight to your reputation or character that you overreact to. I think if we're all honest, we are all guilty of overreacting. For some of us, maybe more than others. In the Gospel of John, people are quick to pick up stones against Jesus. You have to be pretty angry with someone to say, you know what? I'm going to pick up a stone and throw it at him. I'm not even going to pick up a stone and throw it at him. We're all going to pick up stones, and we're all going to throw at him, and we're all going to kill him. You have to have a pretty overreaction or be pretty angry with someone to do that. Especially, I want you to think about where they're at. They're actually in the temple when they think, we're going to pick up stones and stone him. They're in the temple of God, a holy place where they go to commune with God. And they think in their mind that what Jesus says, like, this is the place we're stoning him right now. It's like, uh, it's like if you decide, like, I'm preaching here. You're like, that's it. I'm tired of what he's saying. I'm going to throw down fists right now faster. You would win. No matter who you were, you would win. But that's the kind of absurdity in what's going on at this moment. And it's not the first time in Gospel of John, right? And we got it in this passage in 859 earlier. So they picked up stones to throw it at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And then here in verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. So why do they want to stone him? Previously, in just the verses before, we said Jesus has been speaking in parables, and they asked Jesus, stop speaking in parables, speak clearly, and tell us who you are. And Jesus diverts the conversation to his works. In John 10, 32-33, Jesus answers him, I have shown you many good works. They ask, the question is, who are you, Jesus? And he says, I have shown you many good works from the Father. From which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. I just want you to think about what Jesus is doing here in this moment. They ask him a question, tell us directly who you are. He answers that question by saying, have you considered my works? He doesn't address their question. Jesus actually pauses the moment. I mean, they're at, they, they picked up stones. Who are you? Have you considered my works? He pauses the moment. 
He diverts their attention, not from their question, but to a new question. And he asks the question, what work are you going to stone me for? It's just a change of de-escalating the moment. And the Jews respond, they, like, they slow down their response. They actually respond. They don't pick up the stones and just throw it at him. They actually, it's not for your works that we're going to kill you. It's for your blasphemy. It's that you, you being a man, has made yourself out to be a god. It's blasphemy. And for, on many levels, they are right. If you're a man and you say that you are God, in their law, even if they were able to, he ought to die. They're understanding Jesus clearly. He has said just previously, I and the Father are one. He, he connected clearly to their great prayer that they pray every day. The, the Shema in, in Deuteronomy 6.4. That the Lord God is one. The Lord God, our God, is one. He's saying, I am that God. But the thing is, they're completely wrong. You see, they think that Jesus is a man who makes himself out to be God. But that's not who Jesus is. Jesus is God who condescends and makes himself a man. That is a completely different thing. I I want you to understand the difference. He's not a mere mortal that declares himself and then rises to the power of God. He is God himself, author and creator of all things, who condescends, who takes on the flesh of humanity. It's full of grace and truth. In John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 14 in chapter 1. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Today, people struggle with Jesus because of the resurrection. Like they can't wrap their mind around, how can someone rise from the dead? How can something dead become alive again? But here's here's the thing I want you to really understand. For the Jews at that time, For either early church, the big issue was the incarnation of Christ. It was this concept that God became man. That God decided to dwell among man, to put on flesh. This was like inconceivable to them. How could this be? They actually understood the resurrection better than the understanding that the fullness of God dwelt in Jesus that God would do this kind of thing. Hebrews 1, 3 says, he is the, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I just want you to hear that word clear. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. You and I are called to be transformed into the character of God, not his nature. We will not be God, but we will be like in his character. Jesus is not just the character of God. He is the very nature of God walking among us. The scandal of Christianity is the incarnation, the idea of of Christmas, the radical idea that God so loved the world, so loved his children, that he was willing to come down and suffer like them. Suffer 
for them, except he doesn't sin like us. He does this in order that he might reconcile, bring peace to us. He might reconcile to us, to him, conquer death in our lives. The Jews in the gospel of John and the early church could not wrap their mind around this concept. Jesus is God who became man. All they see is a man claiming to be God. You see, the tensions are high in this moment. Even as, as Jesus is paused and redirects, the tensions are still high. But Jesus stalls again. He, he diverts their attention. He de-escalates one more time. But he doesn't, he doesn't go after this theological point. He doesn't like say, let me really explain this to you, who I am. I am God that has come down. He doesn't try to get into this theological argument for them. They're infuriating them. What does he do? He stalls. He pauses the moment. And he points them to the scriptures. To the scriptures that they adore. To some kind of common agreement that they have together. And Jesus answered him, is it not written in your law? I said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken. Right? He finds this common agreement. Look, at, I'm going to quote scripture. He quotes Psalm 82, reference that they would have known. He said, look, at, scripture cannot be broken. We agree on this. The authority of God's word, it cannot be broken. It must be fulfilled. And look at God. God himself called other humans Little gods. He uses that word gods, and he does it in Psalm 82. Let's turn to Psalm 82, because I know that you have memorized it. So I just want to familiarize myself with this. So Psalm 82 says this. God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods. He holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth and you shall inherit the nations. Now, just to kind of break down Psalm 82, like this is kind of a weird argument that Jesus is making. A little esoteric. It's a little bit weird psalm. Like what is this psalm talking about? Some explanation is that this, the, the God is referring to the midst of the gods and you are gods that he's talking. This is the nomenclature of humans in that time to refer to their judges and their rulers, that they would refer to them as God, that they stood in the place of God to bring justice, and their role in particularly was to protect those that needed to be protected, those, those that were fatherless and weak, and to, to bring justice into the world. And so that's one understanding that he's talking to the judges and the justices of the rule, the rulers of the world. If we go back to the, the book of Judges, right, the book of Judges, the people that judged were actually the rulers of Israel. So he's talking about the current ones today. But... I don't think that's what Psalm 82 is actually talking about. I think it's better textual clues that Psalm 82 is talking about all of Israel. That God is referring to all of Israel as you are gods. You are gods, sons of the Most High. And that's the key word. You are the people of Israel. You can think about this is what God calls his 
children. In Exodus 4, 21 to 22, and the Lord said to Moses when he's introducing himself personally, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power, but I will harden his heart so, you, he, so that he will not let the, peop, the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, including that all of Israel, important language here, is my firstborn son. This is common language in the Old Testament that all of Israel, as the children of God, are considered the sons of God. And, and I want you to understand sons is not as biological sex, but it's talking about inheritance. That in that culture, in that time, it was only sons that inherited it. Actually, there were cases in the law that uh, women can inherit it, but it was only because if there's no sons. So they're saying, hey, you are my firstborn son who gets a double portion of the inheritance. All of Israel is the firstborn, a double portion. And what is Israel's responsibility? To live out justly, to take care of the weak, to take care of the fatherless. This is what Psalm 82. And so God is referencing them not as God themselves, but as gods, as rulers of this world. When you can think it back now in the creation testimony, right? The job of Adam and Eve and all humanity is to rule over, have dominion over all the earth. You are gods. And here's an incredible thing. Psalm 82. Israel is the gods. He's the firstborn son. What does the New Testament do? Jesus is Israel. This is the movement that the New Testament makes. This is the movement that Jesus says, look at, I am the true Israel. I am the firstborn son. You are all united with me. I am the one that fulfills all the things that Israel is supposed to do and fulfill. I am what God promised long ago. I am the Israel. And the church are united to Jesus, and therefore they are. So the new Israel is not the church. It's Jesus. We are just united with Jesus. And so when he says, you are God's sons of the Most High, he's referring to Israel, he's referring to Jesus, and he's referring to who we are supposed to be in his character. And what is his character? What are the people responsible, God's people responsible for? To live out justly, to care for the weak, the defenseless, the fatherless, to seek justice for them. Hold on to that thought for a moment. In verse 36, Jesus goes on to say, Do you say of him the Father, whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? You see Jesus' argument here? So, hey, God calls us all sons of God. You're Israel, right? He calls you a son of God. Why is it so weird that I call myself a son of God or the son of God? Why is that blasphemy? And then Jesus diverts it again and goes back to his first argument in verse 37, 38. If I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe. But if I do them, even though you do not believe, Believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. I just want you to think about what he, what he did there. He didn't directly go after their question or their accusation. He diverted their attention 
gave them a moment to pause, to reflect, in a moment that they weren't willing to pause and reflect, that they were going to respond in anger. Now, you can think about this as a divine appointment that God is orchestrates when he's going to be killed and when he's not going to be killed. That's one theological way to think it. But just in that moment, Jesus pauses, diverts their argument to Scripture, diverts the, hey, just consider my works for a moment. Consider my works, he says. Believe in my works. Trust in my works. Don't worry about what, you, what I'm saying may be confusing to you. Look what I do. Why is that? Because all of the works, the reason why he does all of them is to point to who he is. All of them. Just like all the, the parables he says, he actually says so they don't understand, all the works actually point to clearly state who he is. Then he says, right, at the very, on verse 36, you go back to that, do you say of whom the Father consecrated, who the Father anointed? This is actually very fascinating, and we've seen this over and over again. At every feast, particularly in John, Jesus has used imagery of that feast and said, hey, that's about me. You go back to the, uh, the feast uh, of the harvest, the, the water, that's me, right? You go over to the Passover, right? He is the Passover land. And here, this is the feast of dedication, which we know as Hanukkah, right? And Hanukkah is the celebration of when the Jews, uh, so what happened in 167 uh, AD, uh, BC, uh, the Greeks came over, they overthrew the temple, they actually put in a pig on the temple seat, on the mercy seat, and made a sacrifice to Zeus, a pig, right? Just wanted to understand the connection here, which is desecrating the temple, dedicating it to Zeus instead of God himself. And so Hanukkah celebrates that this this revolt, the Jews overcome the Jews and restore, rededicate, reconsecrate the temple. That's what the celebration is about, is that we're consecrating that the temple has been desecrated now it's being reconsecrated for God, to worship God, that we get to encounter God. And here Jesus uses that word, whom the Father has consecrated. He's in the temple saying this, at the feast of dedication, whom the Father has consecrated. What an interesting language. He's saying, you consecrate this temple to be with God. The Father consecrates me so he can be with you think of that movement quite radical different right you you think you're doing a good thing and it's not a bad thing you consecrate this temple and try to restore this so that you can actually encounter and be with the father but you see friends that's not how it works that's not the gospel we don't consecrate ourselves we don't make ourselves right to be with god god consecrates Jesus so he can be with us so that we can be made right. You see the difference? This is revolutionary. This is radical. This is a powerful imagery. And in Matthew 12, 16, 6, Jesus says this, says this in the temple. I tell you something greater than the temple is here. You think this temple is really impressive and important, and it is, but I am greater. Because I am the God that you try to encounter in this temple. I am he. I am the one who walks around here. And he goes, I am doing my father's work in which he consecrated me. He told me, this is what I am to do, to come down to you. 
believe in my works. Believe in me. In John 5, 19 to 22, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing on his own accord, but whatever he sees the Father doing, for whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he, he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he will show, so that you may marvel. I just want you to hear that. So the Father, because he loves the Son, shows all the works that he has him doing. What does the Son do? Because he loves us, he shows us all the works. Why? So that you may know who he is. Because he loves us. This is what he's saying to them. Like, believe in my works. Look at my works. I do these works because I love you. In John 5, 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. These works. Pay attention to these works. John 14, 11. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. That's that oneness. Or else, believe on account of the works themselves. If you don't disbelieve my words, believe what my works point to. Which goes back to the John 10, 38. Believe the works. Trust what I do. So that, there's a purpose of that. So that you may know and understand that the Father and I are one. All the miracles of Jesus point so that you may know and understand that he is the Son of God, the Son of the Father, one with the Father, one God. Jesus is telling them, pause and reflect. Put down your stones for a moment. Don't overreact. Listen to what I'm saying. And then he quotes scripture. And then he says, look at my works. And then he references images of their festival and says, look at their point to me. On one hand, this is a moment to slow things down. It practically lets Jesus escape in this passage. You see it later. He escapes because they are paused. They are reflecting and he's able to flee. Because it's not the day. It's not the time for him to die. The very action of slowing down, not overreacting, reflecting on the very nature, the very, better word, very character of God helps them further identify who Jesus is. The very character when we slow down, when we don't overreact and take time, helps us to reflect on the very character of who our God is. Nahum 1.3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is a whirlwind and storm. And the clouds are the dust of his feet. I mean, that helps me understand God quite a bit. Just want to think about every time I am quick to angry, to anger, I am not being in the character of God. As plain and simple. Every time I raise my fist in my car, I spew out. Every time anger bubbles up with me and I don't have time and pause and reflect, I am not in the character of God. 
and that, and that God's way is a whirlwind and a storm. Amen to that, because that's what it seems like in my life. Like, oh, the path is clear. This is the way to go. No, God's way doesn't seem so clear all the time. It is a whirlwind and a storm, and the clouds at the dust of our feet. You can say that's literally how God led his people through the wilderness. In a whirlwind and a storm, the cloud of the, the, at the daytime, right? And the fire, parallel fire at night. This is how he led Israel wandering through the wilderness with only him to follow. God is long-suffering and patient. That's one of the first qualities we begin to understand who God is. This book, this Bible, repeats this theme over and over again about God's patience and his discipline with his hard-hearted people. That's you and I. You and I should not mistake God's patience and his kindness for his ambivalence toward our sin. He is not ambivalent to any sin, but he is slow to anger, he is patient, and he is kind. There are reasons for that, but he is not ambivalent to sin. You and I should never be ambivalent to our sin or to anyone else's sin. Slow to anger. Now, I'm not telling you to, to beat yourself up over your sin, but maybe you ought to beat yourself up a little bit. Some of you are too casual about it. Some of you are too flippant about it. Some of you don't even care how God forgives. No. He does forgive, but he is not ambivalent. So don't be ambivalent as well. That's not his character. Be slow to anger with other people's sin. Be patient and kindness like our God is, but don't be ambivalent. Don't be ambivalent to evil or death. God is not either. His patience and slowness to anger with us is all meant to draw us to repentance, not for us to live however we want, to draw us to repentance. Jesus doesn't come into this world as a roaring lion. He comes into this world as a lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus will roar one day. He will roar in judgment. It is very clear in Scripture. He is the judge. Romans 2, 4 through 11. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and the forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience, that's interesting, in well-doing, seek for glory and honor, immortality, he will give eternal life. But those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and the Greek also. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew and also the Greek. He's saying that basically it's the Jews and the Gentiles. Everyone, that's what he's saying, the Jew and the Greek. So if you don't, you're not a Jew and a Greek, don't worry. You're included in that passage. For God shows no partiality. Jesus, clearly in John, it says, Jesus comes to save the world, not to judge. He doesn't have to judge the world. The world stands condemned. He comes to rescue the world with his patience and his kindness. 
We should all be thankful of this passage that justice will happen. That true justice will happen one day. That all sins will be reckoned for. Everyone will have to hold account. Here's the difference what he says in the gospel. Is that, look, Jesus comes and dies on the cross. All those that believe in him, Jesus takes the penalty and the justice for your sin. There's, there's an option here. You either, justice either served at the cross or it served on your life at the day of reckoning. Justice will be served. Either Jesus pays the penalty for you or you pay the penalty. That's the message of the gospel. Clearly, he says, believe in me. Believe in me. Here's the practical implication for us all. We are all quick to overreact. We are all quick to overreact in anger. Maybe, I mean, some of us are probably more so than others. But in comparison to Jesus, we are all quick to overreact. We're all quick to impatience. We're all quick to cruelty. We're all quick to anger. Perhaps as Jesus does for the Jews here wanting to stone him, we should heed his advice. In our anger whatever it is for, in our thirst for our perception of what justice is, perhaps we should first pause and reflect. Not just meditate, pause and reflect so that we may know and understand who Jesus is. We pause and reflect on him. When you find yourself getting angry, when you find yourself getting impatient, when you find yourself being cruel, all those things, you ought to pause Reflect on who he is. Whatever you need. Maybe you can just think of verses in your head. Maybe you actually need to open up this book. Maybe you know who he is. And just take time to think about it. To think about that Jesus is slow to anger. That he's great in power. That he is rich in kindness and patience. Think about that as an inheritance to pass down to your kids. Rich in kindness and patience. He's rich in kindness and patience for those who have committed hideous crimes against him. Every sin we do is against him. I mean, it gets us other people too, but ultimately, it's against him. We are quick to anger on our posts, on our thoughts, on our ideas, our actions that offend our sensibilities. Jesus is slow to anger on the darkest and cruelest sins against him. I don't want to over-moralize this text, but I'm doing a good job of it today. But he's telling us to be slower to anger and slower to response. But in our anger and in our impatience, let us hear Jesus' words clearly. Pause. Reflect. Hear the command to know and understand who he is. He is slow to anger. He is rich in kindness. He is rich in patience. The good news is Jesus doesn't leave us in our anger and in patience, but he gives us his Holy Spirit to begin to transform into his character. Praise be to God. We seek to understand who Jesus is so that we know 
that he is recreating us, resurrecting us to his character. Jesus, the incarnate son of God, comes so that we might be resurrected sons in the terms of inheritance, but as all children of God, sons and daughters of God. Incarnate Jesus comes so that we may be resurrected, the children of God. Let us pray. Gracious Father, forgive us in all the ways that our anger arose this week, in all the way that our impatience showed itself. Lord, slow us down. Give us ears to hear to hear you, to know and to understand who you are, to praise you for the work that you have done and the work that you're doing for us and the work that will be done. Lord, we thank you that you are changing us from our old ways to your way. Lord, that path seems at times like a whirlwind and clouds of dust and I don't know the way and I don't know how. But let me consider your works. Let me consider your promises. And that you are a God that always does what you say you will do. I thank you for the work that you've started in the lives of these people in my life as well and the life of this church. I thank you, God, that we'll finish this work. In the meantime, Lord, help us to slow down. Help us to pause and to reflect on your character. And then respond with the richness that you have given us as an inheritance. Praise be to God to you. Praise be to God, to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.